surprised one that I worked with was I'm a huge hockey person. And one of our clients ended up being the Arizona Coyotes. I ended up getting to re-interior design their entire conference room. They were like, we need a place where we can have sort of press release type stuff. That's not just a step and repeat, but also that we can have like team meetings in and that people feel proud to work for the coyotes and, you know, feel the team spirit and that they're part of the team, even if they're not on the ice kind of deal. We ended up going with the theme of skated ice. So I found a great image to a photo of ice that had been skated on, blew it up really big. So the whole room's coated in, in ice. And we did a lot of 3D elements. So it was a lot of doing textures on the wall that were made from hockey sticks and creating patterns using the hockey pucks and things like that to really bring the elements of hockey into the room. But the one thing I loved the most and the I wish I made a mini one, but their logo, their original logo was is called the Kachina. And it's this really intricate Kachina illustration of a coyote with a hockey stick and it's geometric and it's made of all these colors that represent the Southwest and the desert. It's like a puzzle when you get to take it apart and put it all back together. And so what I ended up doing is that I made a 3D version of it. So I ended up like all the different colors had different levels. I hand painted everything. And I basically ended up making this six foot five 3D Kachina that was hand done, hand cut, hand assembled and painted. And that was like the big piece in the room and everyone loved it. It was my favorite thing in the world. Welcome to the Modern Work Podcast. I'm your host, Katherine Conaway. In this episode, I interview Jessica DeWitt, a visual designer and art director. Jessica and I met in 2016 on Remote Year and conducted our first interview in 2017 in Vietnam. In 2021, we did a follow-up interview over Zoom. I was in Texas, she was in Arizona. In our conversations, we talked about her early interest in psychology, her decision about where to go for college, working in the music industry as an undergrad, and then transitioning to communications and design. She explains why she didn't think her graduate degree was necessarily worth getting and talks about her experience working in arts nonprofits in New York City. We discussed her transition to freelance along with traveling during remote year. And then in our follow-up, which you'll hear later in this episode, we catch up on her life and work from the past four years, including during the pandemic. Show notes are available on modernworkpodcast.com slash episodes. Now, please enjoy our interview. Would you like to introduce yourself? Of course. My name is Jessica DeWitt, and I am a visual designer from Brooklyn, New York. Awesome. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Jess and I are finishing our remote year together. It's the last couple days. It's very, (laughs) it's a lot. There's a lot of feels. (laughs) It's a lot. Um, But I'm really excited to talk to you because I've worked a little bit with you this year, seen some of your stuff, but, and I know you have a lot of backstory to where you got to today. I'm very curious to hear that. Unfold. <laughs> it's definitely an interesting journey and not one you would expect to lead to a visual designer position, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, then let's just dig into that. Um, where did you kind of grow up and get started in life? Um, started in life, I was born in Delaware, but then quickly moved to Arizona, where I spent the most of my life growing up um, in the west end of Phoenix in a town called Peoria. 
and just my dad, my mom, and my brother and I, and our dog, Taz. <laughs> um, when I was younger, we did normal family stuff. <laughs> Very into Christmas. Very into Christmas. Um, <laughs> middle name is Noel for a reason. My brother's middle name is Nicholas for a reason. So... Yeah, we're a big Christmas family. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, basically just had a really, I guess, normal childhood. One of those where you grow up not knowing that maybe things were weird, but maybe they were. Um, and I lived in Arizona up until I was about 20. So I grew up in 120 degree weather in the desert, learning about snakes and scorpions and doing dance teams and being on sports teams and spending the majority of my childhood figuring out how I could get out of Arizona because that was not where I was meant to be. I was meant to live in either LA or in New York. Um, so what you've done. So so. congratulations, (laughs) childhood, teenage Jessica would be very proud. She would be very proud. Um, but I spent a lot of my high school years really focusing on like getting those AP credits and making sure that like my GPA was 4.0 or stronger and, really focused on SAT scores so I could get those full rides at out-of-state colleges. Is that Um, what happened? No, of course (laughs) not. (laughs) Um, What ended up happening is I did get quite a few scholarships um, to smaller colleges around the United States um, and to NYU. At the time, I was really interested in forensic psychology, so I was specifically looking... How did that happen? I really loved psychology and loved the study of people and behavior and to this day still do. Um, Maybe that's why I'm in design now, but a different sort of study of behavior. But I also, of course, in the cliche way, was very into CSI and like law and (laughs) order and was just like, yeah, I really want like, what is it? B.D. Dong's character on like Law and Order SVU who would come in and like talk to the either the victim or the um, killer or whoever it was to like get the inside scoop about like their mentality and why they would do something so horrific to somebody or what would drive somebody to do something like that. And for whatever reason, in my morbid state of, you know, 16, 17 years old, I was like, yeah. that's my life choice. And um, so obviously very niche super small like pool to choose from when it came to colleges and I also was dating a boy at the time Mm. and said boy was not super stoked on the choices were between Tulane University in New Orleans or um, a smaller university which the name escapes me at this point but it was definitely in like Connecticut or Rhode Island it was a very small school in a very small city and said boy was not on board with that he wanted to stay in Arizona and of course because he's the love of my life I'm going to marry him and we're going to have children together I was like I'll make this work so the University of Arizona actually had a forensic psychology um, degree at the time and I had gotten a full ride there and after speaking with my father and doing all of the spreadsheets about cost and all of those learning moments that you know your father wants to instill on the daughter that just has big dreams Um, I decided to go to the (laughs) University of Arizona. (laughs) So I ended up there. And um, how did your forensic psychology major go? So I started strong, had all of the, you know, schedule lined up. I was going to finish in four. Um, 
And by the second semester, my freshman year, we, everyone in the psychology department got a letter notifying that they were changing the tracks that were available. They were no longer going to offer forensic psychology as it was a little bit too expensive for a state school. And they were just going to lump it in as sort of um, a specialty class associated with the behavioral psychology tract. So they were only going to do behavior or yeah, behavior and cognitive. And that seemed really boring to me. So I was crushed. I didn't know what I was going to do. So I figured I would just do all my general education courses um, and I would figure it out later. What ended up happening? What ended up happening is my mom, in her all of her wisdom, started talking to me about things that I was interested in between the ages of about nine to 12 or so. And, you know, she was trying to get me to draw on my childhood and things that made me happy and all of those kinds of little maybe key moments that would dictate what could possibly bring you joy or, you know, something later in life. Um, But she didn't phrase it that way. She phrased it as, well, when I was watching Oprah, she said that whatever you were doing or (laughs) brought you the most joy between those ages is probably pretty indicative of what will make you successful later in life. And I was like, great mom, thanks. Thanks for the Oprah talk. And she's like, well, think about it. What were you doing when you were uh, 10 years old? Do you remember you at 10 years old? And I'm like, I was a jerk. Like I was mean. I was in sixth grade. I was terrible. <laughs> I be a mean person for life. <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm like, you can call my best friend. She still has proof in our notes that we wrote back together. And I'm like, I am awful. We need to get rid of these. Um, so I was like, I don't know. I, I was just started doing, you know, dance more seriously. I was on a couple sports teams. My mom's like, no, 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 think harder. And I'm like, mom, this you really, you got to throw me a bone. And she's like, Okay, well, when you were 10, that's when we got our first computer. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, do you remember how much time you spent on the computer? And I was like, I loved Microsoft Publisher. I lived in Microsoft Paint. I typed up all my notes from class. I was always the person that if there was a weird extra project that you could do for class, I was on and I was going to make it all pretty on the computer. to my life. (laughs) Exactly. So it's like we had this one event where... For three days in sixth grade, we did outdoor ed. We would go up to Prescott, Arizona. We would learn about nature, do a bunch of weird, like, you know, make ice cream and dissect owl pellets and go on hikes and all those weird naturey things that you think are valuable as skills later in life. Turns out they are. Um, But... Um, they normally put together a booklet of like, here's your day's activities and here's like more or less some of the things you need to do, a journal spot, just, you know, like an activity book more or less. And my history professor, I guess he's a teacher at <laughs> in elementary school, but came up to me and was, you know, noticed that I had started typing up notes. And so he then was like, why don't we work together and we can create something really great. And so I guess in sixth grade, my history teacher was like my first client ever. And we ended (laughs) up, my parents taking me to Staples and finding um, some beautiful paper that I could print this like cover sheet on and did a whole like booklet for it. And I'm sure it cost my parents an insane amount of money and like ink and paper because we printed it all for my house for the entire sixth grade. And, um, from that moment, I was like, oh yeah. And she's like, you made so many things on that computer. And like that short amount of time, like maybe 
something in the art field or something in some sort of design field is for you. Oh, look at that mom. No, right? Doesn't it suck when they're always right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So from there, I looked into it to see what sort of design program was at the University of Arizona since I was already there and um, had the full ride. I um, found the visual design course and Basically, I needed a portfolio in order to get into it. So as someone who had never taken really an art course in her life or had a portfolio at all, (laughs) um, I spent the summer between my freshman and sophomore year at Pima Community College taking all of the intro courses and building up a portfolio so that come March of my sophomore year, I could feasibly have some sort of portfolio to submit. And it worked. And it works. I got in. So must actually be some truth to that. Whatever happens around 10 to 12. Thanks, Oprah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my life to Oprah, apparently. (laughs) So once you were in the design school, um, how did that lead into what you focused on or like internships and work that you did in college or, or right after college? Well, during my time um, in the visual communications department, you picked between design or illustration, and I went to design. And when it came time to sort of think about internships, which was summer of junior year, I had already been working at Warner Electro Atlantic Records. Why? Because I really love music, and I thought I was going to be in the music industry. And that, so it was just a part-time job It was just a had? part-time job. I worked as their um, lifestyle marketing rep. So how did you get that job? I just applied for it. <laughs> and they're located where? It, well, it was a remote gig, so more or less. What year was this? 2007. That's so funny. It, I can't believe how many people tell me about some job they had and they're like, oh, well, actually it was remote. And it's at like a point in time <laughs> where that's not that popular. And even now people are kind of like, this remote thing is brand new and nobody does it. And then I'm like, wait, no. No, yeah, it's actually um, the person in charge of the program was headquartered in New York City. Um, my immediate boss was located in Phoenix, Arizona, and I was down in Tucson. And I was the only one in Tucson. Randomly, obviously, my boss would come down and for events and things like that. But ultimately, I was in charge of visiting all of the record stores in Tucson, attending concerts, making sure our artists had like proper placement, making sure I, you know, coordinated events where there were listening parties for up and coming artists. If one of our artists was coming to town, making sure they had visibility in you know the city trying to gauge more or less what would be popular for um, the label. Did it make sense if, you know, the raconteurs came through or not? Did it make sense for someone to play a festival or not? Those sorts of things. Is Tucson somewhere that a lot of music, like, events and concerts happen? Because this sounds like a lot, and is I maybe that's just normal in every single city over <laughs> a certain size. Well, Tucson's interesting in that it's a test market. So for food, for entertainment, for all kinds of things, it's a test market. We always get weird stuff first. And for Tucson, it's also interesting because especially during Coachella time, Tucson is between L.A. and Phoenix. So artists would come through Tucson on their way either to Coachella or after Coachella to play extra shows. 
So it was always interesting to see who would make the stop in Tucson or who would carry on to Phoenix. So it is kind of a uniquely it's busy a, yeah. music hub. Yeah, it I is. I would not have guessed. <laughs> now I know. Yeah, so and a lot um, comes in and out of Tucson for sure. And it was a really interesting job to have for sure. We have our own little festivals and things like that too. But a lot of it was spillover from Phoenix where... Um, if they weren't quite popular yet, um, Tucson would probably be better for them just because it's such, it's more of a college market. It's younger. They're a little bit more up on just going to events for the sake of going somewhere, as opposed to people in Phoenix who, if it's a particular artist at a particular venue, then that'll make the decision for them. If it's an event that's happening at one of the venues in Tucson that are generally pretty small, but it's also a bar, and it's, you know, Thursday or Friday night, you can probably sell your tickets, no problem, just because people are going out. Um, so what did you think of that job? I loved that job. Um, I love talking and communicating with people and learning about what they like and don't like. And so I had a lot of great relationships with a lot of the record store owners and with the radio stations and um, people like that. And... I just, you got to, I had a, car, a trunk full of CDs and like posters and stuff that I got to, got to give away for free and like, who doesn't As a love? a college student who <laughs> loves music, that does sound pretty exactly. cool. Exactly. Um, so I was doing that at the time um, during college and decided to leave that position because I was going to go intern at Sony Records instead during that summer. Okay. And Which was something you found, again, like on your own or through school somehow? On my own. Okay. Found um, on my own, just searching, I think it was like entertainmentcareers.com or something really like nondescript that you probably think is not going to lead to something great. And um, I applied for that, got it. I interned, uh, interned as the PR um, associate and then... Quickly while I was there, the tour and marketing person went on maternity leave and they needed help there. So then I just got hired on as actually the tour and marketing assistant. Um, and I just ended up working there the entire summer and the internships more or less turned into something a little bit more professional. And when it came time for me to go back to Tucson for my last um, semester of school, I was offered the job to stay and be like the tour and marketing person and like work with all these fantastic artists. And I had to sit there and really think about whether or not I should finish college or continue with this music trajectory that I had set up for myself. Ultimately ended up finishing my degree. I figured that would be the smarter um, move in the long run. And I have not gone back to music since. All right. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and so we're just getting to the point that you're like 21 or 22. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you finished this design degree. Mm -hmm. You, I now know, aren't going back to music <laughs> after that. Um, so what did you decide came next or what opportunities showed up? Um, well, when I got back to um, the university, I really started to take seriously the fact that I was majoring in visual communications with a design degree and maybe I should start doing that. 
<laughs> is a wild idea. It's really strange um, that you would want to maybe practice what you've been learning for four years or three and a half years. And um, I, I did basically just went on the university job board and looked for any sort of student design position that looked remotely interesting. And I found a position at the student union um, in the marketing department, just doing everything from, you know, the restaurants we had on campus to the campus movie theater to events on our mall, um, anything really. And so I applied for that and it felt worse than a plot. Like it felt more anxious and like, oh, there's no way I got that. Uh, more so than when I applied to actually get into my program. Because I remember walking into this tiny, tiny office that kind of could have been a broom closet, too. Um, <laughs> oh, colleges. <laughs> right. And, like, the department itself, when I joined, literally was three people. It was um, the creative director, wonderful woman, Misha Harrison, um, the senior designer, Meredith, um, and the web developer, Seth. The only full-time people, no students. That was the department. Misha came in, turned on a couple of lights. and was like, oh, let's look at your portfolio. And every piece, she was like, well, why did you choose this? And I was like, I don't know. I thought it looked good. And she had some sort of scientific or historical reason as to why it either didn't work or why it was a happy accident or something like that. But I basically just walked out of the interview feeling like maybe I chose wrong. Like I can't even explain why I did half of the things I did in my portfolio. I'm still resting on this looks pretty like I've made a huge mistake. Um, three days or so pass. I get a phone call saying they would love to hire me. And I basically started working as a student um, at the Student Union Marketing Center and worked there until I graduated and loved, loved it. Learned so much, got, was able to do so many different things, everything from web designs to marquees to learning like iMovie so we could do previews before movies that showed in our student union theater and um, got to work in music a little bit because we would do... <laughs> do different sort of benefit concerts and we were in charge of um, the events when um, musicians would come through so I got to work with artists like Jay-Z and Kelly Clarkson and Katy Perry anyone that really came through the university so because they knew my background in music I was able to do extra work for those venue events um, and basically I graduated college in 2008 and the economy was... Oh, boy. <laughs> was I was over that. <laughs> right? And I, I was moving to L.A. I had loved living there um, the summer previously. My friends all lived there. I was, that was it. That was where I was going to go. That was, that was the thing that I was going to do. And so I'm applying for all kinds of jobs um, in the design field and getting, like, nothing back. And the most I think I was offered was maybe a three-month internship that paid lunch, essentially. And I couldn't, I was like, I can't justify moving to L.A. with, like, no job. Um, this was before I realized you can do move anywhere, and it's fine. Like, you'll figure it out. 
But, you know, 21 year old me was I'm very responsible. I'm going to not move somewhere until I have a position and like some sort of path that I'm carving for myself. And so a couple months after I graduated, I was still working at the university as a student designer. And they messaged me one day and just said, we're going to have a position open up and we're interested in giving it to you if you're interested. And it basically was just an entry-level design position with the team. And I was the like, same team you'd been with. Same team I had been with um, for the year before. And basically, I was like, absolutely, I love working here. This is, this is great. And it pays money. And it's a job. I'll take it, whatever yeah. I need to do. And then I worked there for five years. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So I worked there until um, basically from 21 to 25, 26, more or less, before I moved to New York. Actually, they are one of the very few remote gigs that I've had on remote year as well. So my relationship with them is is still a thing. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So over the course of those years that you were working there, were you kind of consistently doing the same things and working in the same way? Like with the same like department or whatever? Um, what was interesting about the department was, like I said, when I started, three people full-time and maybe two or three student workers. By the time I finished, we had moved offices. We were about 10 people full-time and 15 student workers. We wow. had gone from the student union uh, marketing department to the student affairs marketing department and really, in the course of the, I'd say at least the first three years that I worked there, made an impression on the university community as experts sort of in the marketing design field. And we're starting to get more requests for doing things like recruitment or doing stuff for um, our recreation department and our sports teams or looking at doing stuff for like the president's office and those types of events and doing orientation and doing graduation and all these events that were generally handled by much larger um, departments on campus. And we started getting those requests and started having to really all hands on deck. So I started doing basically poster design and logo stuff and maybe some invitations and really ended with creating the first interactive recruitment tool for the admissions team and setting up a fireworks show for graduation okay. <laughs> by the end. <laughs> That's a lot of growth. It was an insane amount of growth. And to this day, it's you. I can go back to the campus and be like, we were in this tiny broom closet I remember us all, no one had an office or even a cubicle at that point. It was just, you know, wherever we could stick a computer. And then by the time we were done, we were designing our own space in the union and like, you know, what we wanted to look like and what kind of materials we wanted and what color the walls were going to be. And, you know, it was insane to see that sort of growth or even that sort of confidence and respect from the university for that type of growth. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And you said you went from that to New York. What eventually took you or made you decide to go there? Well, one of my goals, um, general just goals, was I wanted to have a master's degree by the time I was 30. And I knew I wanted a degree 
in something other than design, but could be partnered with it really well. So a business degree, a marketing degree, something in that sort of um, field. And I thought long and hard about it. Since working at the university, I really felt um, strongly and passionately about nonprofit, social enterprise, that sort of um, trajectory of industry. And I decided at that point, the degree I wanted would be a nonprofit business. I was working with a lot of nonprofits um, on the side, whether I was volunteering or designing pieces for them. And I sort of felt that's where my passion was lying and where I was feeling most connected to the community and to my work. And from there, I decided to look towards more of that type of degree that honored more or less the arts and culture of, of you know, our time. And I found... (laughs) the arts and cultural management program at Pratt Institute and was like, you know, I spent no money on my undergraduate degree. And I really think that moving to New York, going to a reputable school for your master's, it's okay if you spend a little bit of money there and really, and really just take that hit. Because even though I had the the goal of getting my degree, my master's degree by 30, I had made no like sort of investment in a moving plan or any way to pay for it and that sort of thing. And I also have made the habit of, oh, this sounds like a good idea to do now. I'll apply. We'll see what happens. Oh, I got in. Okay, I guess I'm moving. Like I am not a super strong planner in my own personal life. (laughs) So around 25 actually was when um, the Tucson shooting happened. And I just was so struck by how responsive and warm and everyone came together in such a beautiful way. And I just felt like this was the time I'm ready to go. I need to be bigger and better than myself at that point. And for whatever reason, to me, that meant getting my master's degree and having all the tools possible to either come back and be able to run something on my own or don't have be able to go into a company or an organization and really see the whole picture instead of just the marketing or design aspect of it. So off to Pratt you went. Off to Pratt I went. How um, is that master's degree? Well, <laughs> I wish I could say it was the best decision of my life and I was super, you know, enthralled in the studies, but ended up feeling more or less like I was teaching the courses and that I had more experience than some of my peers. And it really felt like I had just paid a hundred thousand dollars to get a piece of paper. And that's really all I got out of it. First semester, like anything, or first group of classes rather were introductory. So you're like, okay, like we're going to really get into it and it's going to start getting very interesting. And we're going to, I'm going to learn all these things. And I went to an Arizona state school. So this is definitely going to be better than that. And like, I'm going to be so inspired and this is going to really change my life. And I'm going to, and it did of course, but not in the way that I think I was hoping that it would. Um, I met a lot of great people. A lot of them I still obviously speak to and actually work with to this day, but at the time it became more or less me just showing up to class and just being in the room essentially to get the attendance points. 
but the program itself wasn't as insightful or um, didn't quite fill me with enough like, I feel like I'm making an impact or I feel like this is my place. To me, I just was like, I might be making a mistake. I have no idea. Mm. But I'm also stubborn in the fact that, like, you moved out here. You are going through this. You're going to finish this kind of thing. So I think that might be the one moment in my life where it might have been smarter to have walked away. Unclear, though. Unclear. Unclear at this point. When you were doing these weekend classes, then were you working those two years? Yes. I worked at the public theater. Um, well, let me backtrack. When I first got to New York, I was, I got to have a job, any job, whatever it is. I took the first job that was offered to me. It was a production director at a stationary company called Dabney Lee. Hated it. I am not meant for stationary. I am not meant for that sort of environment at all. Um, it just never clicked. Nothing clicked. Um, they explained over and over again the different types and how it should work and all of the different patterns and the monograms. And I could not, for the life of me, keep them straight. I had cheat sheets. I had everything like laid out. I couldn't. Couldn't figure it out. Just was having the roughest time. And around, and so my birthday fell on a Monday. We celebrated my birthday in the office. And the next day I get like an email saying, you know, can you stay after? Um, and I was just like, Ooh, getting fired for sure. Like hundred percent, this is what's happening. And so I told my assistant and I was like, I think I'm getting fired tonight. And she was like, no, 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 no. They absolutely not. They love you. They went, I'm like, they might love me as a person. I'm not doubting that, but I am not good at this job and I am not <laughs> happy. I'm like, it is very apparent that I literally clock in, clock out. And, um, so that's exactly what happened. 6 p.m. rolled around. I sat down and they basically were, you're not happy here. And no, <laughs> no, I am not. Um, they were very kind. They, you know, basically just said, why don't we just call this, you know, a probation period? And it just didn't work out. We weren't. You yeah. Know. And I was basically like, yeah, of course, that sounds great. Gave me great letters of recommendation. Left on great terms, just yeah. definitely wasn't. Yeah, not everything works out. Not everything works out. But it was definitely the first time in my life where something hadn't worked out. So right. <laughs> I was devastated. And I had just got the apartment and was living by myself in New York City and feeling really fancy, even though I lived in Crown Heights and like, <laughs> you know, but I had my own space and I didn't have a roommate. And like, it's a lot. It's very impressive if you can do that. Um but so then I spent a lot of time watching Netflix for a while. But a month later, I got an incredible gig working at the public theater, um, both in their marketing department and in their graphics department. So I split my time um, working there. And I started in the marketing department for Joe's Pub, which is the music side of the public theater. So for them, I did everything from setting up social media platforms that they hadn't had before, introducing them to things like Spotify and how they could actually post events on Facebook and like get people RSVP or do Facebook ads and like really um, learn how to engage their community a little bit more and get a little bit more youthful response from from people that were coming to the shows 
The other cool thing about that gig was if you worked there, you also got to stage manage a bunch of shows. So I had two nights a week where I would stage manage upwards of three shows a night because Joe's Pub is set up that way and that there is a early show, a middle show and an evening show and uh, or an elite show. And so I got to stage manage a whole bunch of crazy stuff that came through everything from like Broadway to you know, guitar, indie folk singers and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then on the other days I would work in the graphics department, designing things for like Shakespeare in the park. And at the time the public theater was undergoing a huge capital campaign and was redoing their entire lobby and a few of their theater spaces and was basically rebranding themselves. So this was the first time I actually had that design job that, really inspired me to look at design more than just a pretty poster or something as an advertisement, but as this living, breathing experience that people attend or see or respect or don't respect or love or hate, whatever it was. Um, the cool thing about the public theater is Paula Cher is still the, um, overseer of all of the identity for the public theater. So we got to work with her to rebrand everything and working with someone like her is just... Who, who is someone like her? Oh, for people, for people that don't know. <laughs> for the listeners out there. She um, is one of, um, one of the more influential um, graphic designers out there. She's responsible for a lot of um, incredible identities, the public theater being one of her main ones. She's sort of a New York institution of herself. They, she's one of the, I believe, um, founding members of Pentagram, which is a huge design studio. And she, to this day, still designs everything for the public theater, at least in terms of working with the design team and the in-house team to really set forth the, the look and feel for each season. So it was... It's really it's cool. Pretty cool thing. Yeah, it's like an amazing thing to have such a an access to someone like that. And just to hear her talk about the way things should be felt or seen or like the way she thought about, you know, how, what the what it should even look like or why it should look that way and pulling on themes from the shows that we were seeing and, you know, looking at the public you know, theater logo, you're like, oh, it's just some interesting type put together. And she's no, it actually represents the island of Manhattan. And you're just like, oh, my God, like you put so much thought into every little thing. And that's when I it sort of clicked for me in design is listening to her talk about the choices that she made and how deliberate they were and how focused um, the intention was on each piece. So working there um, for, I worked there for a year, was probably the biggest education I think I could have had as a designer. That's awesome. Yeah. And then that ended basically when your school ended with your experience ended at Pratt. And now you're graduated. <laughs> <laughs> More or less. Um, unfortunately, the public theater did not pay nearly as well as one would hope. And I needed to start looking for a little bit more of a serious role that had more of a serious <laughs> check that came with it. <laughs> and so after a year, I applied for another nonprofit called the Posse Foundation and 
from there, went through the whole interview process, got the job, and basically a semester before I graduated, started working at the Posse Foundation. And stayed there after graduation. Stayed there after graduation. Okay. And was that a design role? It was. I was the design and publication manager there. I was a one-person team, more or less. Um, No designers, uh, so to speak, to help me at all. I did everything from art direction to the production to vendor relations, budgeting, all of that stuff. And what is the Posse Foundation? The Posse Foundation is a nonprofit organization focused on changing the conversation about how we admit students into college. So looking at a student more holistically as opposed to assigning them a number from their SAT score. It's looking at their leadership qualities, their roles they played in their community, um, anything that might actually determine their success as a person rather than just how they might perform on a test. Okay. Yeah. And you stayed at that job until you came on remote year? Correct. I was there for three and a half years. Yeah. What was kind of that transition point of deciding to come on remote year and leaving that job and leaving New York? I had heard about remote year a year prior um, from the New York Times article. Um, One of my good friends sent it over to me and it was also one of those moments. He was in L.A. I was in New York and we were we were always looking at like the new kitschy thing to do. So there was a lot of like detox camps that we were looking at and detox in the terms of like digital detox, not juicing (laughs) or like not eating or whatever and doing a ton of yoga, more like digital detox, like summer camps for adults where you would do yoga, but you'd also do crafts and you'd like have like a traditional, I guess what you would think of in like wet, hot American summer where like you would spend a weekend, no electronics So we were doing a bunch of Google searches in that realm, which I think then sort of led to, oh, they're looking for more off the beaten path kind of adult activity things. And that's, I think, how we found Remote Year. And they had just launched um, their first group to go. And so I logged onto the website, looked at it. Didn't seem like anything incredibly impressive from the website standpoint. It was very... It didn't start. So you're like, this is the whole website? All right, well, I'll email anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And if it wasn't for that New York Times article, I'd be like, is this a thing? Yeah. Pretty sure it's not. But (laughs) I signed up for the updates anyway. I didn't even think to look for somebody's email I just was sort of like yeah when the next class opens they'll let me know when applications are ready and it's one of the rare times I was really like (laughs) I'm just gonna give it a whirl (laughs) and I had forgotten about it until you know I don't know six months eight months later whenever I got the email saying that applications for the second group had opened and I was like oh I just submit a LinkedIn profile and kind of a quick like cover letter more or less is why I think I'd be a great remote Sure, that's easy. Here, take this stuff, you know. And I had, at the time, at the Posse Foundation and in my tenure in New York, I just kind of was over it and was already looking for something else, whether it was moving out of New York City, whether it was a new job. I couldn't quite figure out what the next the next move was. So I was already in that sort of mentality of something's going to happen next, but I don't know what I want that to be yet. Yeah. And And then you got in, (laughs) as you do. As you do. So when you're on remote year, you've freelanced, Mm -hmm. which is a new thing. Brand new. Yes. How has that been? 
It has been a constant struggle um, for anyone that thinks, oh, I can just quit my job and do freelance or what, whatever they, the, you know, pie in the sky idea is. I have had so much difficulty finding clients, keeping them and, and not keeping them in the sense that like the work just didn't happen. I got to so many, like I would do first round conversations, talk about the project and got to the point where the client needed to send me the files and I wouldn't hear from them for a few days and would have to reach out and sort of, hi, I'm just wondering if I've missed something, looking for that email and getting the email back like, oh, sorry, we decided we're going in a different direction. And I got that for at least six months from people interviewing with and I still held on to the fact that maybe I'd get a remote job. So for the first three or so months, I was interviewing a lot with different um, remote companies, always getting to at least like the second or third round and then not hearing anything and not understand, you know, was it me? Is it something I'm, you know, not bringing to the table? Was it something I said? Like what, what's going on? Um, so I started asking and it really did just come down to, um, well, you're, you're traveling around a lot and we're not confident that the changing of locations while we are a remote company, the time zone thing I think is going to be difficult or they just didn't particularly enjoy my design style or, um, one person just said, actually, you're perfect for the job. We all really liked you. Just the CEO decided they wanted to go with someone they knew. Like things that were kind of out of my control, but then also I felt like I didn't have the opportunity to sort of like go to bat for. Um, yeah, because if people are saying, you know, we have we can work remotely with people, but we're worried about your travel schedule or time zones. But if you can manage those things, then it isn't a problem. And it's it's hard to to know how to approach it in a way that's honest about what you're doing, but also like fear I feel like we've we've just seen this in so many areas mm -hmm. lately like fear makes people make decisions that don't make sense because they're afraid of what could happen mm -hmm. even though it hasn't happened exactly um or they think it's happening or whatever but but like actually we just need to kind of take a step back and and figure out how to just have a solution that that could work absolutely and I was I was super still am very green in the field of freelance and how to even approach that sort of conversation because I also don't know right. how I'm going to manage time zones and, you know, can I even manage time zones? Turns out I can, it's fine. It's yeah. not a big deal, <laughs> but you know, they bring it up and you're like, Oh, I didn't even think about that. And I didn't have a quick turnaround in my brain to be able to have the conversation to say, the time zone thing's on me. It's not on you. This right. is my responsibility to handle on my own. And because it's a very like, that's the thing about freelance that it doesn't seem obvious. But as a freelancer, you are holding the hand of your client. Mm -hmm. And that is so much of how that relationship has to work. And like, you know, they're hiring you and like they're paying you, but you're holding their hand and you're saying it's going to be OK. Like, mm -hmm. here's how we're going to work together. Here's how I'm going to take care of you. Like here, like I, I can be available at these times. We'll have these calls or, you know, like, whatever it is like oh, you're pretty and I like you and like you're very <laughs> strong and very nice. Like that's what clients want. Whatever exactly. the thing is that your service <laughs> is, is like you're just 
you know, making them feel more comfortable and confident because people hire you for something that they don't know how to do or that they feel worried about. So like <laughs> whatever it is, you're there to tell them like, it's going to be okay, client. Like, exactly. It's going to be fine. And I even had one instance I applied for, you know, a, another remote gig um, with a company a theater in New York. And I asked, I asked right off the bat, I'm like, does this need to actually be in New York or can I perform this job from anywhere in the world? Explained remote year, was very upfront about the program that I was currently participating in. And they, I mean, they straight, straight up came back and just, we're not super comfortable with the idea. We're not right. We're not there yet. We would love to have someone in the office. And I said, not a problem. Change your mind. You know where my email address is. Four months later, I get an email from them and they basically had not found someone that they were jazzed about working with and were very much still interested in working with me and would love to jump on a call to discuss how I would work with them. And I think it's very rare to find clients like that, but I was so lucky that they had that, you know, just intuition, just be like, you know what, let's give her a chance. Let's talk this out. And we did jumped on a Skype call, I think 2 a.m. my time and Phnom Penh and I explained how I work and you know the different platforms we could use and whatever made them more comfortable I can accommodate and been working ever since it's been fantastic but I think it's companies like that that really like take a moment to be like actually she is the best person for the job or she's the one I want for the job how can we make this work? Let's start having that conversation. Let's just see if we can even meet on that first plane. And right. I think that's made a lot of the difference. And from there, I started seeing how those conversations, I could start directing conversations with other clients. Right. Like you can come in and say, hey, I'd love to do this project or this job or whatever. And I'm available over email. I can do Skype calls. Mm -hmm. These time frames work for me. Mm -hmm. Like I use Dropbox. We use yeah. Slack, like whatever you want. And yeah. you're making those recommendations and suggestions that give them the confidence to say like, oh, I already know that tool. Or, yeah. oh, okay, I can do 9 a.m. calls or whatever. Exactly. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So now you have quite a few freelance clients. It has really taken off in the last 30 days for sure in true what we call my family DeWitt fashion, where it's all crap until the last possible minute and then <laughs> it pours and <laughs> you don't know what to do with it. <laughs> so, so that's a good problem to now have. <laughs> it is a good problem to now have. So you're going to be traveling a bit and For working remotely. Longer. Yes. And then going back to the States mm -hmm. and kind of, are you, are you planning on continuing to be freelance for the foreseeable future? I think so. Um, like I said, I still feel very green about being a freelancer in terms of doing taxes and learning how to actually manage inconsistent money and um, what that all looks like. This first month, I've actually made money, and it's like, oh, I'm I'm okay right now. Like I can I can pay bills and and still eat ice cream for dinner. Like <laughs> it is gonna be okay. Um, but I know that's not going to be every month yeah. because it wasn't for the past 11. And there's a lot of things that I did financially to myself this year that I'm definitely going to have to sort of rebuild this upcoming year and learning how to negotiate that with myself while still maintaining some sense of play and fun and adventure in my life. Um, I'm trying really hard to 
sort of maintain that as much as possible. And I think freelance really allows me to have that freedom and have that sense of wonder and discovery about life. Yeah. I I think it's a very challenging thing. Um, but if you can be, if you can make it work and be making money in that way, um, it can be a really interesting way to learn about a lot of like your clients and their industries and, and different things that other people are doing and kind of have that ebb and flow of, oh my gosh, I'm so busy. I can't even think. Mm-hmm. And then, wow, I have a lot of free time, which is good and a little stressful because I don't know when I'm going to be busy again, but good because <laughs> I like to sleep. Um, <laughs> and I like that flow a lot more. Like that yeah. roller coaster is easier for me to manage in some ways than every day in an office. But who knows? You know, maybe we'll both be in an office in six months. You never know. <laughs> but I definitely am looking to at least have a home base and sort of start like simplifying my life in that way. So I can sort of see where the cards are falling and, and uh, make decisions from there. I think I also am definitely interested in doing, you know, like short contract gigs or maybe I go into an office two or three times a week and that sort of thing. I really, I still, I still like going to an office as weird as it is, I like being around people and I like having, you know, that sense of community and stuff around, which is probably why remote year was so clutch because if I did this itinerary on my own, it would be very hard. I don't think, I don't think I'd make it a year if I did this completely by myself. I mean, I've been traveling for a long time, but I've made the itinerary before remote year Mm -hmm. intentionally include people and places where I had more connections because you don't want to be alone mm-hmm. all the time. Um, and I, I think the like vilification of, of offices is a, too extreme on the other end of the spectrum. Like mm-hmm. working remotely is great. Traveling while you work, very cool. Um, but going into an office isn't bad. And I know a lot of people miss it. And as much as it's great to work around people on remote year, there can be something nice about working in person with a team and like mm-hmm. sitting down and talking through something face-to-face even though the remote apps and tools are great and Mm -hmm. so being able to have a balance of those in your life and and sometime in person and sometime remote I think is kind of ideal I think the bigger problem is when we're expected to be in office even when we don't need to or it's like you're in there every day and you're just like oh sit at this desk even if you're not busy like oh I can't go to the gym I can't go to the grocery store I can't go to a museum like sitting at this desk is a better use of my time. Like that's the problem with an office. That doesn't mean like burn down the office, you know, (laughs) it's like we need to find out how to make the office work. Exactly. Not that it's pure evil and no one should ever go. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think at least bringing those remote apps into the workplace to show them like these work really well as communication tools. We don't need to all sit around a table and have a meeting. We can, sit from our desks and have, you know, zoom in or we can, you know, Google Hangout, whatever it is. And or, you know, we can throw up files on Slack and put in our comments and all that, you know, say things were approved, say things weren't approved, you know, do an action plan. There's so many, you know, there's base camp for project management. There's all kinds of things where having these things in the office can start, you can start to sort of educate how they would work outside of the office. Yeah. And I think that that's really an interesting place with those contract gigs being that you would go in maybe once or twice a week. 
you could be there, show face, be there for that important, you know, collaboration, brainstorming, whatever. Because there is something to be said to be like in the same room as people when you're coming up with ideas and when those sorts of conversations are happening. But once the project's off and running, like if you don't run into any major like mistakes or boulders or something in the way, everyone should be pretty well equipped to handle their section of it on their own. Right. With minimal, you know, interference from others. Right. Yeah. I think it's about thinking. I think it just requires that individuals and companies and teams really think about what they do and how they do it. And what of that is best practice and what of that could be different and, and taking the initiative to make those changes. And like, I completely understand that sometimes budget and schedule and other things make it seem like that's okay. We'll just take care of it later. Like let's focus on the client work or let's focus on this deal. Um, but I think it's important to spend time on like processes and how you're doing your workflow. And when you're doing that and you're consciously thinking about how to do that in the 21st century and how to do that with technology, you end up creating an environment where people could work remotely part-time or, Mm -hmm. you know, have fluctuating like months and weeks that are in one place or not. Um, And so I think that's something that like, you know, we have a friend who just convinced her team to let her stay remote and they had all these issues and she was really afraid of being this poster child of, of other employees being like, well, if she gets to do it like this and this and this and, And I was like, well, yeah, and I understand that you are going to be the one that people point at. But if it wasn't you, it was going to be somebody else because people are going to demand to be able to work remotely. Mm -hmm. It's just going to happen. Like other companies are doing it. It's the way the world's going. Like we're going to have to deal with it someday. So Mm -hmm. either you're part of the process and your team is going to deal with it or they're going to be a child and like put a pillow on their head (laughs) and yell no. And it's still going to happen. Like You're still going to have to deal with this eventually. Exactly. And I think um, while I was going through remote year and talking to my dad about the struggles of trying to find clients or convince people that remote works and it's fine and Trust, trust me for, you know, I know you don't know me, but trust me. Um, my dad basically was like, you got about five to seven more years of us old white guys in charge that think like you need to be in the office and you do the nine to five. You need to be at a company for 30 plus years. And like these old ideas of working are incredibly dated and not relevant anymore with the way technology is moving and the way people are interacting with each other. And it's just a matter of time before that idea, you know, dies away. And, and I think given the opportunity to show people what remote work is like, or even the idea of you can do your job from anywhere, not even a remote gig, but just you can travel like normal and, jobs, a normal job. You can, you can answer emails from an airport. You can you know, schedule a meeting from the backseat of a cab somewhere. You can, you can check in and send files and do all these things now from your phone, from a computer with a hotspot with Wi-Fi. There's so many avenues that you can easily do your job from anywhere. It doesn't necessarily have to be remote, but it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Like it doesn't have to like, just because you're traveling the world for your job. Like you can plan that to be four weeks or six mm-hmm. weeks. It doesn't have to be permanent. Like nothing has to be all or nothing. Exactly. It, it can be sometime in an office. It can be sometime on the road. It can be sometime you're doing weird hours. Like these things are up for negotiation and conversation. You just have to be talking about it and planning it together. And it just takes some conscious thought 
but it is workable. It is workable. And I think I've learned that the most um, this year. To me, when I did freelance in my past life, I it was, you know, stuff for friends or it was, you know, an invitation for an organization. It was it was always very minor things that, you know, required a couple hours of work here and there. But it wasn't ever something that I thought, oh, I could actually nurture this relationship and educate them on why they should hire me for more things or they, you know, it wasn't ever a thought. It was always just, oh, I'm just doing them a favor because they know I'm a designer. It wasn't, oh, I can actually make this a working relationship and turn this into something more fruitful for the both of us. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until remote year when I actually realized what all that entailed that I was kind of kicking myself because, you know, most people build up that freelance clientele and get themselves to a place where they're comfortable enough to be able to quit their job. It might be rough for a little bit, but at least to a place where you're meeting your bare minimum I just threw in all the towels and was like, we'll see what happens. (laughs) So in that regard, I feel like I misstepped a little bit there. But, you know, after 11 months of being surrounded by so many inspirational people, people in the same boat, people learning freelance, people, veterans of it. It's it's been really rewarding to have traveled for a year and seen so many peaks and valleys from so many different angles, whether it was someone who actually had a remote job and was going through the struggles of having to maintain very specific hours or people's you know, computers dying or whatever the case may be and how people dealt with it and how quickly they were able to like spring back on their feet or adjust was something that gave me, I guess, more, more evidence to do it and more... If they can do it, I can do it. And this actually works as a thing. And you're not crazy for thinking that you can live this kind of lifestyle. Yeah. Because I think so much people are like, oh, wow, you're traveling the world and you're working from wherever. That's just that's so amazing. And you must have the best life. And I'm like, it has been hard to sort of figure out what that life even looks like. It sounds great on paper. Yes, I travel and I'm working remotely. Like I am doing this interview from Ho Chi Minh City. And after this, I'm going to go to Myanmar. Like those are not statements people say generally and maintain working. So I think the underneath of it, I think is what I would rather educate people on and get better at understanding myself too. Yeah, definitely. It's, a, it's an evolving thing, but it has been really cool to have the experience and, and gain confidence and insights from the people around us who have so many different jobs in so many different ways. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. You've had quite a crazy journey, but I'm <laughs> excited to see where it goes next. Me too. <laughs> Very excited to catch up with you again now over four years since we spoke in Vietnam at the end of remote year. Obviously, a lot has happened with you and the world. We'll focus on the you part. Um, And so, yeah, I'm really excited to hear what you've been up to. And let's just maybe start with what happened when remote year ended in Vietnam in 2017. What, what, What did you do next? After remote year finished, I kind of didn't have a plan and I decided to keep traveling. I was already in Southeast Asia and 
there wasn't really any opportunities back home for me that I needed to rush home to. Um, and I was still, and at that point, my freelance had kind of kickstarted after a year. So I was riding high on that and thinking that maybe I could make this my life more full time and really be a digital nomad. Um, so from there I did a little bit of travel. I did a stint in Myanmar, uh, Laos. I went up to immediately after remote year ended, I went up to uh, Hanoi and spent a little while there. And then I caught up with a few people in Bali and after about like two months, maybe, maybe close to three, I was kind of bored of traveling on my own and kind of missed people and didn't have any sort of draw to go anywhere else at the time. Um, freelance had steadied. It wasn't picking up, but it wasn't slowing down either, but it also wasn't quite enough to sort of sustain me on the road either. So I made the decision to come back home and I made my first stop in New York city. And there I just kind of met and hung out with people and caught up with everyone and didn't think too much about it was just kind of like, I'm going to say hi for a week. And then I'm going to go back to Phoenix and visit my family and see what's going on there. Still no plan, which is my MO in life. And went back to Arizona, was there for maybe a month or so. And then ultimately decided I'm going to drive back to New York and pick up my things. Uh, a friend of mine was taking care of my cat that I needed to get <laughs> and um, a few other things, books, clothes, things like that, that I had left behind for the year. And so I did about a three week road trip across America, made it back to New York and still no plan. So kind of just hung out and freeloaded off a few friends for a while. And then ultimately actually landed a contracting job at 92nd Y and still didn't really have a plan to stay in New York, but also thought a great way to supplement my freelance income would be to contract as well. And so friend of mine knew a recruiter, um, met with her. And a couple of days later, she's like, actually, there's this great nonprofit. Sounds right up your alley. And it was. Um, so I'd spent six months at 92nd Y. 92nd Y is an arts and cultural institution in New York. They do everything from talks to poetry sessions to literature, dance, music, pottery, all kinds of stuff. It's basically a giant art hub. It's a great institution if you if there's ever events again in the world and they do them in person, definitely do it. They have a lot of interesting talks. Um, uh, politicians stop by all the time. Everyone, you know, I think Obama's been there for sure. And Michelle did a, a talk there when she released her book. Um, everyone from actresses to musicians to artists to writers. It's it's really a, a, a cultural hub of arts. Stuff So right up my alley, things I absolutely love. They uh, brought me in as a senior designer um, contract position. So same stuff as I'd always been doing, posters, programs, brand identities, um, web stuff, things like that, print ads, magazines, things like that. And after about six months of sleeping on my friend's couch, I kind of decided that I really wasn't ready or wanted to come back to New York. I'm mean, like, I loved the job, but as with most nonprofits who have an art department, 
the, the only way to get promoted is if someone leaves. So while it was like a decent, um, income, I still was working a regular nine to five. I went in Monday through Friday, um, pretty much like a normal job there. It wasn't, um, contract in the idea that I had in my head where it was like, maybe I go in twice a week, maybe I do, you know, half time or, you know, things like that. So there was some personal family stuff going on. And I just kind of made the decision that, you know, maybe I needed to be home during this time. At this time, it was towards the end of 2017, 18, 2017. I don't understand time. Um, so right around my birthday, which is in November, I packed up my car, dropped my cat and took the cat across country this time who had a blast, <laughs> I have to say. So I got home, I think that, uh, 2017 around Thanksgiving. Um, and I kind of just was like, you know what, maybe I need to stay in Phoenix for a couple of years and just hang out with my family. Really haven't lived at home slash in Phoenix, uh, since I was 18. And so I was 32 now. And, um, pretty much was like, okay, might be a good time to sort of reset and re, um, figure out where everything's going in my life. And from there, um, freelance really hadn't picked up exponentially. Like I anticipated, um, I was making a little bit here and there, but nothing to really allow myself to live any kind of life, um, in America, especially let alone traveling. So Freelance became the side hustle again, and I would work on it from time to time. I picked up another contract job, this time working at um, a private school, doing same stuff, web ads, print ads, programs, curriculum design, things like that. Um, it was fine. It was kind of a weird vibe. Not um, my kind of people. There's a lot of drama. It was like being back in school, to be honest. <laughs> so I stayed there for about three months, I think, and then decided, you know what? I've never worked at a branding agency or design agency, period. I've always been an in-house designer. And, you know, the money's going to be in agency work. So why don't I... I try my hand at that. And I ended up landing a job at a very small branding firm here in Tempe. And they were fantastic. It was a super small team, just me, one other designer, the art director, office manager, and then the owner. So five team, five person team, very tiny. Um, but very quickly started noticing quite a few red flags. Um, the art director was let go pretty much immediately after I was hired and we never got one back. There were never any other designers hired. So it was just me and the other designer pulling the weight. The environment was super fun. Um, everyone got along really, really well. And business was interesting. Like I got to work with clients that I probably otherwise wouldn't have, um, working with financial institutions, working with, um, doctors and lawyers and, um, all those kinds of things. But the prize one that I worked with was I'm a huge hockey person. And one of our clients ended up being the Arizona coyotes, which is my, my team. And, um, so the second 
that came in, like I lit up and I was like, what are we doing for I don't even care if I just am putting logos on hats. Like I will do anything. I ended up getting to re interior design their entire conference room. So they were like, we need a place where we can have sort of press release type stuff. That's not just a step and repeat, but also that we can have like team meetings in and that people feel proud to work for the coyotes and, you know, feel the team spirit and that they're part of the team, even if they're not on the ice kind of deal. And so that was the funnest thing ever. Um, I ended up, we ended up going with the theme of, um, skated ice. So I found a great image to a photo of ice that had been skated on, blew it up really big. So the whole room's coated in, in ice. And, um, we did a lot of 3d elements. So it was a lot of like doing textures on the wall that were made from hockey sticks and creating patterns using the hockey pucks and things like that, um, to really bring the elements of hockey into the room. But the one thing I loved the most and the, I wish I made a mini one, but their logo, their original logo was, is called the Kachina. And it's this really intricate, um, Kachina illustration of a coyote with a hockey stick and it's geometric and it's made of all these colors that represent the Southwest and the desert. So it's a doll, but a coyote playing hockey. That is a good question. (laughs) How would I describe the Kachina? Basically (laughs) it's, it's an ancestral spirit in mythology for, for, um, the Pueblo people. So it's basically a doll shaped person that represents the spirit in ceremonial dances. And so it's like, yeah. Yeah. So they've taken that element. Yeah. The element of the spirit that's, you know, healing and all of those kinds of things and very powerful and turned it into the hockey thing. They, the original designer coordinated with the native people and like, it was a whole thing. They did a really solid job, um, of, you know, making sure they weren't disrespecting anyone and weren't appropriating anything and, you know, really doing their due diligence there. And it's my favorite logo ever. And it's like a puzzle when you get to take it apart and put it all back together. And so what I ended up doing is that I made a 3d version of it. So I ended up like all the different colors had different levels. I hand painted everything. And I basically ended up making this six foot five 3d Kachina that was hand done, hand cut, hand assembled and painted. And that was like the big piece in the room and everyone loved it. It was my favorite thing in the world. It's probably the best thing I've ever done. Not really, but (laughs) it was one of those like moments where I'm like, I think this is super cool. And I'm probably one in like 10. But, um, well, but you are also great of the demographic of who's going to encounter it. Right. You know, who's going to go into that conference room? Well, it's probably people who think that this team and their logo is pretty cool. So yeah, very good audience and location for that kind of thing versus some other, you know, if if like I ran into that at the museum, I'd be like, this is interesting. But yeah. I don't care about hockey. So like it would be a different vibe, you know? Oh, for sure. So, for sure. so I think it's great, you know, given yeah, what, no. what you were working on. 
No, it definitely fit the, uh, the project description for sure. Um, and I got to just play in hockey stuff for like six months. So it was super great. Um, and after that projects were kind of okay, you know, their website, a lot of website driven things. Um, and so I ended up working there for, for three years. I worked there. Um, this brings us, I guess, to the p- pandemic times. And, um, yeah, we, we went remote pretty much immediately. I did have a boss that was very against it and very much views working from home, like vacation time and thinks that when you work from home, you're not really working that kind of uh, mentality. And as the pandemic went on. I mean, he, Arizona very much operated under the assumption that after this two week shutdown, we're going to be back business as usual and nothing's going to really change. We just need to shut down for a bit and then everything's fine. And when it became clear that that was not going to be the case, things got a little difficult at work in terms of being able to own my projects. I was slowly being sort of stripped of responsibilities, no longer attending client meetings, no longer being able to present my work, um, those kinds of things. Because you were remote. Yes. Because my boss sort of viewed this. And I think it was also a control issue on his end where he felt um, like because we were remote, there wasn't the tools that we could use to do a presentation remotely. Like he just didn't want to lean into this like so many other companies did. And um, so he took it all on himself because he just was like, well, you know, my designers are remote, so I have to do everything now. And I have to be the one to do these things. And I'm the one keeping the company afloat. And he just really kind of became that obsessive about it. and it just, it got unbearable half the time. And towards the end, I very much was just like, whatever you want, I don't care. I'm not even pushing back anymore because my opinion doesn't matter. And I'm not being given the respect or the trust to do the job that you hired me for. Um, so kind of started putting some feelers out. Meanwhile, my freelance really had actually exploded again in pandemic times. And (laughs) I was doing quite a bit of work and thought this might be the opportunity. So I had landed a couple new clients, an old coworker of mine from New York had started doing some contracting work, um, more strategy based and kind of hooked me in as his designer. So anytime he had a new client that needed any kind of work, he always reached out to me first, um, which I loved. And he always works with some really remarkable institutions and people. So I knew that was always going to be a win. And so I had landed quite a few smaller gigs and a couple that were, um, more regular that I kind of was like, okay, you know what? Start of 2021 by March, I'm quitting this job and I'm going to be freelance. It's going to happen. I'm doing it. I can sit like, I'm doing the budgeting thing. I'm doing all the planning. This looks like a thing that I might be able to actually do now. And um, so I sort of revamped my website, started doing all the like, I'm going to get a business Google account. I'm going to do this, that, and the other. And like, I'm going to set myself up to be like a business. And um, 
but I also have a few friends in, uh, that do a lot of recruiting and know about jobs and things. And so I kind of just nonchalantly mentioned it to, um, a friend of ours from remote year that she knew anything that a senior designer, art director, creative director realm, cause those all seem to kind of be lumped together anymore. Um, let me know. I might be interested. And a couple weeks later, she came back to me and she was like, Hey, don't know how you feel about tech or startups or anything like that. But the company I'm contracting for is looking to hire one. They don't have a job description yet, but I kind of passed your name along already. Would you be interested in chatting the hiring director today? And I'm like, Oh yeah. Like, sure. You know? So I'm like, okay, I guess I'm washing my hair and putting makeup on today and, um, had a great conversation with the director of design for this company and was really excited. And I'm like, you know what, this is super cool. And we get along great. That conversation was amazing. Like it sort of reinvigorated me a little, I was getting down on designing in general. Not that I didn't, like design, it was more just having worked in such a toxic environment for so long. It just kind of felt a little bit harder to be motivated to do stuff, um, and put your best foot forward, you know, and cause it wasn't rewarded when you did. And the work that you kind of were like, whatever about got the same respect as the work that you did that you were proud of. So, right. You just got no, a point. No positive reinforcement. Yeah, is tough. it's yeah. There you go. Yeah, definitely. And so we continued on this interview journey. I think it was about a month, maybe yeah, about a month of just talking with everybody. I talked with their entire marketing team because at the time there were there were only eight. I think people on the marketing team and in the design team. So I talked to everybody. And the overall consensus was everyone was genuinely, genuinely excited about where this company was headed, the directions that they were um, taking and basically their culture as well. And it's a positive work environment. Everyone's really excited about coming to work and thinks the work's really valuable. And I was like, you know what? I could use a positive work environment I am down for this. And they sent me an offer and I basically was like, yeah, this seems fine. <laughs> like, I will take this. This is not a big deal at all. And, um, took the offer and for the first time in my entire career did not give a two weeks notice. I quit effective immediately. And part of the reason for that was there really wasn't a lot of work for me to do. I had planned out their social media calendar for the next two months. I had already outlined all of the newsletters for the year. There was no client work on my desk and all the other pieces that I had had a hand in were being reviewed or waiting to be reviewed. So I was like, I could sit at my desk for two weeks and stare at a screen and do basically nothing. Or I could take those two weeks and I don't know, get my taxes done, maybe sleep a little bit, maybe read. I don't know, go outside. Like, I was like, I need to reset before I take on this job. So 
When did you start this new job? What's the new slash current job? I am currently the art director at Andela. I started on March 8th. Oh, very, pretty recent. Yes, very recent. So I did quit my job in March, yeah, like I did. originally planned to just <laughs> funny and, and took another one. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I mean, if it's a positive environment and it's good and stable and you like the work, like, great. Yeah. Why not have a full time job instead of freelancing? Well, and what's also fantastic. And after four or five years, I finally landed the remote gig. <laughs> I finally have a legit fully remote job working for a company where, you know, if I'm like, Hey, I need to duck out early. I'll make up the hours. They're like, we don't care. Just whatever you need to do. And you're like, wow. Okay. Like is the team distributed around the U S we are distributed internationally. I have team in Kenya and in Nigeria, in London. Um, and then yeah, across the U S as well. What does the company do? So we are currently pivoting, which is the need for um, the art director and things like that. Um, They originally started as an Africa first company that would basically be an education platform for software developers. And Andela would run these programs to train software developers and also provide them with opportunities to work at, um, big international companies and U S companies. So more, it was more education based. We still have that arm, but now we are moving more towards a product based service where we are going to be getting into the, into the field of matching talent with opportunity. There's still the learning arm of that for the talent. That is one of our benefits to being um, a member of Andela and one of our talent, but we are working a lot with bigger um, companies to find and place talent from all around the world in companies like GitHub and Google and things like that, but still software development. And what's the, what's the Africa first aspect of that? Because the, f- the focus was on the Africa tech hubs initially. So we had offices in Nigeria and Nairobi, Egypt and South Africa, I believe. Um, so they were focused primarily where the Africa tech hubs were. Okay. Mm-hmm. And now globally. So, okay. Very yeah. cool. So it's been going well. I mean, some days are better than others. I think anytime you learn a new job, especially one where you really want to do well, it's, you kind of get in this, you know, and especially with a remote job, this is the first job I've ever been onboarded as a remote employees. So instead of just being able to like watch and learn from some people, it's now mm-hmm. very much like, I think I'm asking so many questions of my boss and I'm like, can I talk to this person? Can I do this? Is this okay? And they're like, she's like, yeah, I don't just, just do stuff. And then I just do stuff. And they're like, Oh, you should do this. And I'm like, Oh, I messed up. Like, you know, and <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I'm like, there's so many things that, you know, so many wheels are turning in all these different directions. And and stuff. So I'm finally, and even people I've talked to who've been there for, for years, they're like, yeah, it took like a year before I finally understood sort of how everything operated and all the departments and all the elements and pieces that needed to come together for things to, to function. And I'm like, cool. So I'm like two months in. So I got like, how, 
ten, wild. Ten more months. Keep addressing. Yeah, like figuring stuff out. Plus, yeah, it's like we're. I think I'm also terrible at startup terminology and vocabulary. I'm trying to learn. Um, but we're a Series D that is now pivoted and changed offerings. So now we're an A. We're like at the A in production, but we're a D in finance. So like. It's a weird, it's a weird place to be. And I think that that's also contributed to a lot of confusion, um, just in general among the team where it's like, we're trying, we're trying to do all the things to, you know, satisfy all of the demand, but we still don't quite know what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, I mean, startup, startup life is always adventurous and exciting and always changing. Um, and I think, I think onboarding into a new job is always a bit challenging and takes some time to kind of adjust and figure out what it is, the work that you're doing, what is the team dynamic? Like these things all take time and it, it's more challenging often. I I do think remotely it's, it's challenging. It's nice if you can have some in-person time for onboarding for sure. Even if the job can very much be done remotely, if you could have a week or two, onboarding would would be helpful and if you're not going to have that having structure around how to onboard people not just being like here you go you know <laughs> like if, if you are remote and you're doing that process um the company or the team or whoever yeah it, it would be very helpful to have a more structured approach but usually not everybody has that especially in a startup you don't have that in your job scope to take care of for other people so yeah um, that's very true and um especially when part of my job description is to create and streamline processes and figure out workflows and deal with kind of that sort of issue of how do we introduce someone into this team and what sort of you know values do we operate under and how do we use these tools and you know what meetings do we need to have versus should have and you know all of those kinds of things and it's been you're building the plane while you're flying yeah, it essentially <laughs> <laughs> always, always great yeah so I think there's been a lot of meetings where I'm like we're gonna try this out um it's iterative so we're going to keep building. Let me know if there's any holes anywhere and we'll patch it up and keep moving. But this is what we're trying this week. <laughs> we'll, we'll keep adding to it. Well, that's, that's exciting. Yeah. So I know from remote year and just in general, you have so many different side hustle project things you've worked on and done for fun and for work or not like work, but you've been paid to do them. And I'm curious, you know, how, how are those things going or not going? Well, I do have a very good knack for taking hobbies and making them paying gigs. Um, (laughs) So I did go back to teaching pole dancing for a hot second. When I was in New York, I went back to the old studio and took up a few classes and things like that. And had a lot of fun doing it. Um, but since moving to Phoenix really have not found a pole studio. I absolutely loved. So I take classes from time to time. I have my own pole that I can practice on at home and stuff. So as one, as you always do. Does. 
Yes. <laughs> um, but really have sort of dropped that. And instead I actually found a really fantastic studio that does more dance fitness and they do a couple platforms and of which I got certified in all three. So fun. I can teach turn up VXN and mix fit. And they all are basically the same sort of idea that, you know, using your body weight paired with fun dance moves, you can sort of do a hit style dance class, um, that pairs, you know, jumping jacks and squats and burpees with also twerking and, you know, that kind of stuff. It's basically like an, uh, elevated hip hop, um, Zumba class for sure. I got my yoga teacher certification as well. And pretty much that was my side hustle up until, uh, the pandemic sort of shut everything down, but I kind of kept it up and did some, you know, special event stuff throughout, um, the last year, uh, a lot of outdoor workshops that were outside and things like that. Um, did a couple of those coming into 2021, I was like, you know what? It's not really fun anymore for me to teach. And I'd rather take the classes and maybe I'll get back into teaching later. Um, but with this new job, I'm working, um, East coast hours. So I'm up at 6am and (laughs) working as opposed to my usual wake up at nine and work. So by the time teaching like a 7pm or 8pm class, just as not, (laughs) I do not have the energy anymore to do it. I've sort of let some of those things go and have decided to sort of reclaim them back as my sort of mental health vacation time where I can not have to worry about, did I do a move right? Or did I mess up the routine? Is everyone having a good time? Is someone injuring themselves because they did something weird? Like I can sort of just let go of all of that now and, and enjoy dancing and fitness and stuff again. So kind of drop the ball on that, uh, not drop the ball, but reposition the ball. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I don't, I don't think it's dropping the ball. And I think you know, that's something, so it's May, 2021 currently, right? So we are just at the point where the CDC is adjusting. If you're vaccinated, you can go do things with people. And it's like, yeah, opening up more for the time being, who knows what will happen. Um, and I got vaccinated pretty early, just out of stroke of random luck, trying to get my parents vaccinated in February or something like that. And, um, I really feel like the year leading up to being vaccinated was so stressful and exhausting. Um, even if I wasn't necessarily working super intensely full time all the time that whole year, just the experience of the pandemic was very tiring. And after getting vaccinated, it's like, okay, now that I'm not so stressed about this, I can actually start thinking about myself and my life and what I want and what I need and what I want to make time for and spend my time doing. And I mean, I was traveling up until the pandemic and everyone's like, when are you getting back on the road? Like, when are you doing everything? I'm just like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, this is a great, like, yes, technically I could go do a million things, but actually how can, how can I just do my work 
and then do what I want need to do and like figuring out like how to take care of myself and and process out this pandemic and stress and everything and like what brings me joy and what do I want to be doing and what do I want to set myself up for in the next year or two with my life and work and everything else and I, I think a lot of people are going through that and kind of evaluating okay where do I want to be spending it my time and now that I'm not trying to juggle a million stressful things at once, like what, what, are, how am I going to allocate my time and my energy? And like, what do I need also? No, that's definitely, I mean, me to, to a T, I really spent the year of the pandemic, like just trying to hold on to my job and being safe and also saving the food industry with all the carryout that I ordered. And, <laughs> but yeah. And so now that things are starting to reopen back up, like you said, the CDC is, is you don't have to wear a mask if you're fully vaccinated now, um, as of today. Um, I, I am fully vaccinated as of last Tuesday. So I was a little later to the vaccine vaccine game, but but yeah, it's been kind of, I mean, it's weird now, like if, to be out even with a mask on or, you know, being distanced and stuff. But um, yeah, I think going back to looking at all of my side hustles, they very much became side hustles. When I lived in New York, it became a very easy way for me to lower my cost of living. If I could teach a fitness class, then not only did I get paid for it, but I probably got the gym membership for free. So then I, there's my gym membership. I volunteered at a CSA. So I got discounted groceries, you know? So I'm like, I was always looking for the angle that I could approach um, something in order to make the cost less for myself. And finally, I'm at a point in my life where I don't need to stress and do that. So hyper actively about it, that I'm like, you know what? I, I can have a gym membership and not have to teach at the gym or, you know, I can, um, I don't know. I can go to the grocery store and afford food. I don't know. But, <laughs> but I mean, like it's, it's definitely until we figure out how to make it possible to live as an adult in America and afford that, that, which is a whole other thing. Yeah. But while it can be so hard in your 20s, mm -hmm. you know, to afford the things, but you still want to have stuff in your life, you do have to get creative with, okay, yeah, if I volunteer at this yoga studio, I can take classes or I can work at this place on the weekend and get an employee discount or whatever. And not that you should work all the time, but unfortunately, sometimes you have to um, and <laughs> until we fix it. Um, and it, it it can help. And I mean, yeah, I remember living in New York on a very, very, very small budget and deciding, okay, I'm going to join like these couple museums and I'll get a membership to this thing so I can get discounted like theater tickets. And I, you know, I had like three or four different things that it's like, okay, I'll spend money here because it makes other things free. And that way I can do mm -hmm. things that don't cost me more money. Exactly. You know? And it, and, and yeah, and then you get into your thirties and your career and you can afford things. You're like, okay, great. I can just buy the ticket when I want to go. <laughs> like, yeah. Fantastic. And I mean, it's taken me a while to get there. And the fact that I'm here now, I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't have to work so as hard. I mean, 
not that I'm not working hard. I think it's more just, we don't have to work so extra. extra. Yeah. It's (laughs) yeah. I'm like, I work hard for sure. But I remember when I first started uh, dating my boyfriend, I would tell him all the things that I was doing and like trying to schedule a date or even time to see me was obnoxious. I don't know how he had the patience for me because it was always like, well, I work, you know, until five 30, but then on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, I teach from, you know, six to, to eight 30. So I could meet you at like nine, maybe, but I'm going to be sweaty. Like it was terrible. And <laughs> I think during the pandemic, I just sat there and I was like, I don't want to be coming up on 40 and working 60 hour weeks. Like that's not, that's not healthy for anyone. It's definitely not healthy for me. And I'm like the things that brought me joy and the things that helped me work through stress and emotions and things like that are now things that are causing stress and emotions because I have to plan the class and put the playlist together and make sure I'm there early, make sure I can stay late, make sure I'm available for conversations and like put on that extra personality that you love from your fitness instructors. Like people don't necessarily, I mean, they might come for the class, but they stay for the teacher. So you have to show up, you know, 110% every time, you know, until I don't know when, but yeah, I think that was sort of, if anything, if there's a, I learned a lot during the pandemic, but if there was one thing that I learned is it's like, you don't have to make everything a money making opportunity I still do my freelance on the side, um, and have had great success with that. And it's been fantastic and is still growing. But I think I was thinking actually earlier this week that I'm like, I might need to scale back on some of that and just, just have a job (laughs) period (laughs) for the first time ever. I'm like, I don't think I've ever had one job. I always was doing multiple things, even in high school. I'm like, I was a dance teacher. I worked at a gas station and I tutored like, you know, and which is great to get experience and to have revenue streams. And these aren't bad, but at a certain point it can be tiring and not the way to live always. Exactly. And I think also when you're in your, your twenties and even late teens, even early thirties at this point, it's, you're still trying to figure out what you want to do a little bit. And so these side hustles mm-hmm. are a great way to explore those avenues. You know, um, I had so many people ask me when I was going to open like a dance studio or open, you know, any sort of movement studio. And, and there was a moment where I was like, maybe I could do that. And that would be my thing. And I'd own the business, you know, I'd be a business owner and I would teach and I'd have all this. And And then I was like, no, it's not, I don't want to do it. A couple of my friends do it and it's, it's a headache and a half for them, but they love it. And I don't love it as much as they do. And so I was like, I'm perfectly fine being, you know, a teacher and, and for multiple studios, but there's, you know, there's moments like that too. And it's like, well, freelance. And I'm like, oh, well, that's, a lot of effort <laughs> like to get your clients and maintain all that. And I'm like, and it is, it's a one when it's just you and you're doing all of the bookkeeping and all of the just general office stuff that, you know, you take for granted when you work somewhere, you have to sit there and be like, okay, like, is this something that you're willing to, you know, put in for to have these things? And I had to sit and think, and I'm like, you know what? No, I really don't 
want to be invoicing people and doing follow-up emails and, you know, going after leads and trying to find new clients. I'm like, I, that is the least fun thing to me. And yes, I could probably hire someone to do that, but I also am not making enough money to do that. So there was a lot of like reflection on how I was spending my free time. And if my free time needed to be spent trying to make money. And if that was a thing that, or if it was just free. Yeah. Time. Or if it was just <laughs> free. Yeah. I was like, I don't think I've had anything for free in a while. But yeah. So I think the pandemic really got me to sort of sit down and think about, okay, if you do freelance, is it, you know, are you looking for retainer clients and all of these things? Or are you happy with, I have five really solid clients that maybe once a quarter they reach out because they need a newsletter or they have an event coming up that I do something for. But it's very, you know, it's not consistent in, in the sense that like, I'm not doing something for them every week, but I am doing something maybe five, six times a year. And I'm like, that might be more my speed. And a great way to supplement and just have something a little extra when I'm tired of doing tech startup stuff. But <laughs> honestly, did I know I wanted to be in tech? No, probably would have never in a million years been like, you know what my next move's going to be startups and tech. <laughs> I would not have pinned that in a million years, but w- what I get to do at my job now are all the things that I've always wished were better at the places I've worked. So I get to sort of establish what our workflow looks like, what kind of work we do and how we're going to do it. And, you know, mentor the designers under me and help them advance in their career and things like that. And for that, this job is really everything, the culmination of everything I've worked for in terms of like, being a fitness teacher and being able to like connect with people and have that connection. And I have that with my designers now in terms of being able to mentor and teach and, um, show them a couple new tricks. Hopefully I'm not too old. I can still do that, but you know, those kinds of things. And then on top of that, there's, I think a friend of mine pointed it out. Cause I was like, I'm so nervous. I don't know. She's like, you get to do all the stuff you always complain about at other jobs. You get to fix that here. <laughs> and I'm like, you're right. I do. And I fortunately work for an incredible boss. It's like, yeah, try it. See if it works. Like if it doesn't work, you just start over and you're like, okay. Like, you know, and so having that kind of support as well is really encouraging. Um, and also to be able to fail in an environment where it's, it's looked more as learning as opposed to failing. And I think that that's been super beneficial in the short time I've been there. (laughs) No, that's amazing. And I think, I think we often try to construct too many details of the perfect job or the perfect life or the perfect person or whatever. And really it's about understanding what are some of the core values of what you care about and what are some of the core skills that you want to use. And if you're, if you know, I want to do design and I care about X, Y, and Z aspects of communication, and I really want to have a positive team and a a product that is good and we care about and everyone works together well, Well, if that's what you're looking for, if it ends up being at a tech company or whatever else, it doesn't really matter. Right. Like I work with so many random clients and it has nothing to do with me being a specialist in the industry, but just being like, here are the skills and things I can offer. And if you are a person who 
needs those skills and is pleasant to work with and I respect and value what it is that you're making or doing, then I'm happy to work with you, whatever it is you're doing. You know, like it doesn't, it doesn't have to be so niche and specific. And I think we miss opportunities that could be great if we were to totally discount them. Right. You know, and so that's wonderful. I'm so glad to hear (laughs) that you're at a good job and a good place. And I hope the onboarding and next (laughs) months and year go great for you both at work and in life thank you i appreciate it and i'm so glad we got to revisit this conversation (laughs) you can find show notes for my conversation with jess on our website modernworkpodcast.com you can also find more episodes with people i've interviewed around the world and all sorts of different careers other designers developers a film director and more Please follow along with us on social media at Modern Work Podcast. Leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform and share this episode if you found it interesting. We are supported by listeners and friends on Patreon. You can learn more on our website and we appreciate the support. Thanks so much for listening.